you'd like to follow along with the sermon this morning, there's an outline provided in your bulletin following us where we are going here in Genesis 4. We've been looking at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis and looking at how Genesis answers big questions in life and some of the most fundamental elements of life. And what sometimes bothers us is how Genesis is very different from the histories that we write. And there are some questions in Genesis that we would expect to be in here, things that we would consider great accomplishments that are not in Genesis, such as, who invented the wheel? They don't get credit in here. Who discovered fire? Who invented tools and weapons? And when did government structures and politics first develop? Who do we have to blame for that? You know, we don't get the kind of answers to questions that we might think are important in the history of mankind. The Bible views history differently than we do. The Bible is the history of God dealing with his people. It is his redemption of them after the fall, that he created them, they fell, and now he is working to redeem them in Jesus Christ. And so with this in mind, the Bible is less concerned with who invented the wheel and is more concerned with who had faith in God. Scripture is constantly focused on who trusted God and how can we also trust God. And so in chapter 4 of Genesis, we see the need for this kind of distinction. You see, before it was really easy to figure out who trusted God. They were the naked people. But now they got kicked out of the garden. The one command that determined who trusted God and who didn't is no longer valid because you can't get to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so life outside the garden, how do we know who trusts God? How do we know if we trust God? How do we know what faithfulness looks like? How do we think of history in God's terms? And so with the first generations after Adam and Eve, we start to see what faithfulness, what trusting in God looks like. And so we're going to look at Genesis 4, if you would open your Bibles, if they're not open already. Genesis 4, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and we're in the fourth chapter. We'll be doing the whole fourth chapter today as we look at the story of Cain and Abel and Cain's descendants. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, 
Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we come to you today and we sit at your word. We trust that you have spoken through your word, that your scriptures are inspired, that they speak to us with your authority, and that by your spirit you bring them in power and in fruitfulness in our lives. That your word has the power to change. And, oh God, use your word by your spirit today to glorify yourself and your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Speak to us, oh God, in the truth that we may hear you, that we may follow you, that we may call upon your name and trust in you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So really the question before us today is how do you discern who are part of God's people and who are not? How do you discern if you are part of God's people? That we learned from chapter 3, sin is very deceptive. It doesn't come flashing saying, hello, I am sin, avoid me. It is very tempting. 
So with sin and its deceptive qualities in the world, how are we to know outside the garden who is trusting in God and who is not? Now, this is a question of important context for ancient Israel. You see, the world was not black and white to them. To one generation of Israelites, the Egyptians were saviors. There was a famine in the land, and they went to Egypt, and the Pharaoh, working with Joseph, saved them by providing food in a time of famine. They loved the Egyptians. Go a couple hundred years in the future, a few generations, and they hated the Egyptians. The Egyptians enslaved them. A Pharaoh ruled that all of the newborn baby boys shall die. So were the Egyptians the good guys or the bad guys? Not only that, but then when you get within the history of Israel, you see that there were those who trusted in God and those who didn't. We see from our Old Testament reading that Joseph had ten older brothers, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, well, they were not so kind to Joseph. They were God's people, and yet they didn't seem to act like God's people. That even the most faithful people sinned, while some idolatrous pagans were actually helpful to God's people. So how do you tell the difference when the world is not black and white? Now, for us in our context today, that question is equally true. See, many people can benefit the world and contribute to society without professing faith in Jesus Christ. And others work in churches and preach the gospel to great success, but they nonetheless suffer serious moral failure in their sins. Christians look around and they see the goodness in their non-Christian neighbors and see the sin in their own hearts. And we look and we see goodness does not seem to line up always with God's people. So how are we to tell How are we to look at ourselves, to look at others, and see who's part of God's people? In one sense, that's not our job. And in another sense, we are called to be faithful, to have a heart after God. So what is the distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not? Well, the first part of Genesis 4 explores this issue, and it can confound us a little bit. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God, but God only accepts Abel's offering. And to us, we kind of know the rest of the story, and we're like, well, no, duh, he didn't accept Cain's offering. But when you look at it on the surface, Cain brought an offering to God, and so did Abel. What was the difference? Why not Cain? Was it because God was in the mood for animal that day instead of the fruit of the ground? Was it because it wasn't his best stuff? Did he just flip a coin and say, ah, today we'll accept Abel? What was he doing? You see, for us, We need to think about this in a different context as well, that these offerings were a form of worship. And to understand the difficulty of telling them apart, we could ask ourselves, how can you tell the difference between the people in a church who are worshiping God and who is rightly worshiping? Whose worship is God accepting? How can you tell the difference? Do you judge based on who is the loudest and best singers? Is that who we know is worshiping God rightly? Perhaps it's hand position. You know, there are those people who lift their hands high, and they must clearly be the ones who are worshiping God rightly. Or is it the people who respectfully grab onto the pew in front of them for dear life? Is that who is worshiping God rightly? Is it our dress, our attire that shows whether we are worshiping God rightly? Is it our posture 
Must we be kneeling or dancing? What must we do? What distinguishes right worship from wrong worship? Well, we see it as a matter of the heart. Much later in Israel's history, when they were searching for a new king to replace King Saul, the prophet Samuel started looking around to find a king. And who did he look for? Somebody strong and mighty and kingly looking, who really looked the part. And then God said to him, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Abel's heart was right and Cain's heart was not. And that is the distinction we see. The New Testament shows us this as well. Hebrews 11.4 says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Note that it doesn't say with more faith. That Abel somehow just had more faith than Cain, but his was done in faith, thereby Cain's was not done in faith. Our New Testament reading from 1 John 3 tells us that Cain's deeds were evil. Now we might think that obviously refers to the murder, but it's also speaking to his worship. That what Cain did was wrong. That though on the outside they appeared very similar, in fact hard to tell any difference... One offering was done in faith with the right heart. Another offering was done not in faith with the wrong heart. Well, that leads to a question of, well, if God looks at the heart and we don't, I guess we need special God goggles in order to see the heart. How do we even see the heart? Do we have any hope of looking into the heart? Well, God does see the heart. But the heart, like the roots of a tree, produces fruit in a life, evidences of a heart. And Genesis 4 points us to some of the evidences of a heart that is right with God and a heart that is far from God. So first, we're going to look at the people like Cain, people who are far from God. Now, the obvious problem is it's hard to look directly at the heart and that sin is deceptive. And so Cain and those like Cain can seem really, really good. Sin can seem subtle. You see, Cain just was bringing an offering based on his job. If we had to bring stuff based on our jobs, how could we fault Cain for bringing the only stuff he really had? Even more than that, nowhere do we hear that God pronounced to the whole family, I am not accepting Cain's offering today. All we know is that Cain found out his offering was not accepted. Abel may have brought his offering and skipped back to the sheep and not realized anything had happened. Adam and Eve might not have known that his offering was not accepted. You may not have been able to tell. He might have seen right on the outside, even if his heart was not. Furthermore, Cain's descendants seem pretty impressive. Lamech is one of the most successful people we find in Scripture, it seems. The Bible tells us of Lamech's four children, and it's not just fun names for us to say, but it actually informs us about who he is. Though we don't learn about his daughter, his three sons have very impressive resumes. Jabal began incorporating more animals into the livestock, and so he was enriching the farming economy. Two thumbs up for that. 
Jubal is a gifted musician creating an artistic community. That sounds really nice. Tubal Cain made many instruments of bronze and iron, starting a kind of manufacturing industry. That's like who invented the wheel, who discovered fire. Those are important stuff. That's really important stuff that at a dinner party or a class reunion, Lamech would just be kicking his feet up and boasting about his three sons and their accomplishment. He would be the king, thinking of his successful children, a success we might be envious of. But we learn that their hearts are far from God. And that makes us think, so what about these blessings? What about these blessings that are in the world? Why are they so successful if their hearts are so far from God? Well, the answer is that God shows his grace to all people in a way. He makes it rain, kind of like this morning, on the righteous and the wicked alike. And so people who are far from him are blessed by God with gifts and talents to benefit the world. It's why we can praise pagan Romans for their contributions to government, infrastructure, and philosophy. They came up with some really good stuff, even though they didn't believe in God. It's why we can go to a museum and admire beautiful paintings and sculptures, even if they are done by non-Christians. It's why we can listen to music and hear the beauty of it when the musician or composer is not a believer. See, God's grace is given to all people so that all people can bless the earth. It would be really easy to tell if wicked people were just wicked all the time and just really had a giant sign on them that said, I am bad. But they aren't. It's not the case. There is such a thing as common grace that restrains the evil in the world, but that common grace does not go to the heart. It affects the externals. And so though some of the externals are good, mixed in there, there are some externals that are evidence of a heart far from God. We see this in Cain and Lamech and how they interact with righteousness, with repentance, and with love. First, how does Cain respond to righteousness? Cain learns that his offering God didn't care about, but he liked his brother. And so now Cain is confronted with a man who God likes more than him. And it makes Cain angry. It makes him sad. And that would be great if Cain was angry at himself and sad that he hurt God. But his anger is directed at God and at Abel, his brother. And so he murders his brother and defiantly speaks to God. You see, a wicked heart hates righteousness. It despises seeing something holier than it is. It is ashamed of righteousness and tries to demean anything righteous at every turn. It's the heart of the Pharisees. Their heart towards Jesus because he exposed their hypocrisy and their sin by his righteousness. Hating righteousness is evidence of a heart that is far from God. That's what he thinks of righteousness. What about repentance? God comes to Cain after he's murdered his brother, and he gives judgment, curses him from the ground, among other things. And so he hears this, and we have to ask, does Cain respond in repentance? Here's what Cain says. My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Notice what Cain's concerned about. He is not concerned with his sin, with his crime, with his brother, with his family, or with God. He is concerned with his punishment. That is not repentance. Repentance is concerned more with the sin than the consequences. That is the test of repentance. That Cain never expresses regret or remorse for what he did, only frustration that he has to face the consequences. That is a selfish concern and therefore the wrong concern. It is false repentance, which is evidence of a heart that is far from God. That's how he views righteousness and repentance. But what about love? Seems a funny thing to ask in the life of Cain. Seven times in this passage, Abel is referred to as the brother of Cain. Your brother Abel, his brother Abel, brother, brother, brother. It's like when you say, your son did this. It's your brother. That is the primary relationship being focused on. Between Cain and Abel, it's supposed to be a bond of love and care that genetically the people that are closest in the world are siblings. Why don't they care for one another? Cain murders his brother. There is no love. There is only selfish anger. But Lamech must be better. I mean, he had successful sons, right? Well, Lamech composes a song. Apparently, Jubal taught him how to do that. And he sings to his wives about killing a young man who simply struck him. He boasts that his vengeance is greater than Cain's. He's like, I am way worse than Cain. And he's proud of it. The sin of Cain has multiplied in Lamech. That there is no love in him, only selfish anger, hatred, pride toward all else. That if anyone steps in his way, they're gone. Seventy-seven times, I will take them out. Selfish pride and absence of love, those are evidences of a heart that is far from God. So we have this problem. Lamech had really successful sons, and yet he was a vengeful murderer. There is good and there is bad. And too often we find ourselves on one extreme or the other. We may see all non-Christians as terribly wicked people who offer no value to the world. That their wickedness trumps any good that they can do. And that attitude leads us to close ourselves off from the world, to disengage from the world. We develop an us versus them mentality that they are bad sinners and we are good Christians. But Genesis 4 complicates that because the sinful people did a lot of good for the world. They blessed the culture through their skills. That God shows his grace to all people. Cain may have been removed from God's presence, but God still protected him with that mark that no one would kill him. He was still given a family. God still blessed him, even though his heart was far from him. That all people receive common grace. They're not so far gone in that sense. But the other extreme, then, is to assume that because people seem good and help the world, that their heart must be right with God. And that attitude leads to a different kind of complacency when we neglect nice, moral people and we don't tell them about God's judgment against sin. 
We fail to engage good people with the gospel message that your goodness doesn't save you. We mistake evidence of God's common grace for the fruit of his saving grace in Jesus Christ. And so it is a difficult thing to see. You see, God blesses all people with this common grace, and so we are left discerning evidences of the heart. How do we sift through contributions to society and holiness? How do we sift through selfish goodness and selfless love? That's something we don't just do looking outward. It's something we have to do looking inward. What are our hearts like? Are we trusting in our success? Are we trusting in our goodness? Are we trusting that because I'm not so bad that I'm actually kind of good? What is the state of our heart? See, our New Testament reading from 1 John 3 put it pretty bluntly. There are two kinds of people. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. And it is based on our relationship with God, not on what we do. And that's what we've seen all through Genesis. Genesis 3.15 talked about the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And we get deceived. We are confused. Sin is deceptive. Sin is subtle. What is the difference? And we have to check our own heart. And so then we come to this passage and ask, okay, well, maybe I am like Lamech and his successful sons, and I'm trusting in goodness. What what is the evidence of a right heart? How do we cultivate a heart that is right with God, a righteous heart? Well, like we get two bad examples in Cain and Lamech, we get two good examples in Abel and Seth. And so what evidences of a right heart do we see in them? Let's look at their actions. You know, it seems hard to distinguish the offerings of Cain and Abel, but there is one little difference. It says, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Fat portions. Whatever. I mean, that must be the good stuff. Those terms, firstborn and fat portions, are the signs of the quality of the offering. Bringing a firstborn was a sign of faith, of trusting that God would provide future offspring to that livestock animal. And I will give you the first one, knowing you will give me more. It's a sign of trust. The fat portions were the best parts, and so he would bring those to God. And so from Abel, we see he gave God his first and his best. His first and his best. And when we look at Cain's offering, we don't see those terms. If Cain had the same heart as Abel, you would expect, and Cain brought of the first fruits of the ground. Similarly to the firstborn animal or firstborn child, the first fruit that came up from the ground, the first crops you would give, not hungrily eat, yay, food has come, but give to God, trusting in faith that more was coming. We don't see that in Cain. And so it suggests that Abel's heart was right with God. Evidence that he trusted, that he had faith that God would provide. Cain didn't have that. Giving to God of our first and our best is an evidence of a heart that is right with God. Second, what do we learn from their words? That's what we learn from their actions. What about their words? And that's a really awkward question to ask. What are the words of 
Abel and Seth because neither of them speak. So it's kind of hard to figure out their words. And yet, when describing Seth's family line, verse 26 says this, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? To call upon the name of the Lord. That's a kind of speaking, to call. It at least means that you worship and honor God rightly. That his name is above every name, including your own. That you see him as the highest and best, recognizing him as God. It also implies crying out for help and salvation, that I need him. We see this in Romans 10.13 in the New Testament. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So calling on the name of the Lord is trusting in him to save us. He is the life giver. We trust in him. But Abel speaks too. I don't know if you know this. There's no like direct quotation here, but in verse 10 we read this. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In death, Abel's blood still speaks. And it cries out to God. It doesn't cry out, Mom, Dad, punish him! It cries out to God. Calling upon the name of the Lord is evidence of a heart that is right with God, that we go to him for help. It's their actions, that's their words, but what about their nature? Genesis 4 and 5 kind of go together, but we're going to do Genesis 5 next week. They are contrasting genealogies, and man, there is nothing more exciting in the Bible. Maybe census A census is more exciting, or allotment of land, but contrasting genealogies is just, it's, okay, it's fun, all right. But we see the descendants of Cain set up against the descendants of Seth. We see the sin of the descendants of Cain contrasted with the righteousness of the descendants of Seth. And that's all well and good, but our genealogical societies don't really go back to Cain and Seth. And so we have to look to a different kind of heritage, a different kind of parentage, our spiritual parentage. You see, just like we take on some of our parents' traits or looks, we receive a lot from our spiritual parents. And our New Testament reading in 1 John tells us how. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and 1 John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, that is, keeping on sinning without repentance. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's saying in order to have a right heart with God, you must be a child of God. That he has to change our hearts to make us born again, to have a new birth to move us from our natural sinful parentage of Adam and Eve to a new parentage, an adoption into Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot make ourselves born again. That's, uh, that's not how birth works, I don't think. We don't have that control to birth ourselves. God must do it. And for God to do it, we must call on the name of the Lord. Again, it is evidence that we need him. We call on the name of the Lord, save us. My heart is far from you. Save me, O God. Make my heart right. May I be born again in Christ. Remove the sin from my hearts. 
Because the unfortunate truth is by nature, by our descendants from Adam and Eve, whether it's the line of Seth or the line of Cain, we are all sinners by birth who need to be saved by God. Our hearts are naturally far from him, naturally sinful and selfish. Sin's desire from our very birth is for us, and we cannot rule over it through any goodness we do, any cultural accomplishments we do, any contributions to society. Nothing rules over that sin. Only God can change our hearts. Only he can save us, and that salvation is possible through a descendant of Seth, the promised offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ. See, Abel's blood speaks, and it cries out for justice. But there is better blood speaking a better word. Hebrews 12, 24 tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood cries out not just for justice, but for salvation, for forgiveness, for new life. The word of his blood is the good news of the gospel That sin had to be judged and punished by God as we see Cain's sin needed to be judged and punished. But it was punished in Christ. Our judgment was taken by him so that our sins would be forgiven. So that his blood, instead of cursing the ground, would save us. Would redeem us from our sins, making us new. Children of God. This is the good news that saves us. It's what makes us children of God. But it is not for us to keep and hold on to and disengage from the world. It is not for us to only tell to the worst of the worst people who seem really bad. It is good news that is for us to then be spread and shared with all people so that we all call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That is our task. Romans 10, 13 continues in this way, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We are sent by Jesus. Go, making disciples of all nations. He has given us the authority. He has given us the word of his blood, the better blood, to rewrite history, not by discovering fire, not by making the iPhone 10, not by doing some great cultural accomplishment, though they're helpful. Our highest goal in history changing is to cry out in the name of Jesus that others would call on the name of the Lord. Because our history is not written in our resumes, in our transcripts, and what we talk about at dinner parties or even on our tombstones. Our history is written in blood. In the blood of Christ. That is how our history changes. Will you change that history for others? Will you tell them of Jesus Christ in hopes that they will call upon the name of the Lord for salvation? Well, we change history in this way. 
You see the great accomplishments that change the way the world works may show up in the Bible, and they do seem kind of important, but the kind of change that is eternal, the kind of change that affects the very hearts of people is possible through the power of the blood of Christ. It is what we celebrate today in communion. It is what we share with others. So let us share that good news, first with ourselves that we would have right hearts saved by God, and then with others that all people, regardless of how much good they do in the world, would call not on their goodness, but on the goodness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you do give grace to all people. That those who are far from you are not left without any shred of your grace, but they do have your grace. And we pray that that grace would lead them to you, the giver of grace and the giver of all good things. And we pray, O Lord, that the power of the gospel might go forth. That the good news of Jesus Christ might fill all of us here this day and in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, in our workplace. May it fill the whole nation and world, O God. Would your spirit be living and active. Lord, may there be a great and exciting shouting, a calling on your name by your people. Would there be births upon births of new births in Jesus Christ, sons and daughters adopted into the family. Lord, may we be humbly a part of that, not for our own pride or accomplishment, but that we know we were saved. We were saved by you. Let us share that good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.